The first rule about Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. The second rule about Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club. Now those are words from a movie about fighting. I'm not recommending the film. Don't go home this afternoon and watch the film. That's not the point. But in this movie, there is an underground fight club. It's where men with regular jobs, accountants, teachers, managers, businessmen, they came together at night to beat each other up, to punch each other, to, to fight. It was a secret life, a secret place, a secret fight. Now in Romans 7, we're going to see another kind of fighting. But for Christians, this is not an underground fight. It's not a secret. It's one Paul openly talks about and one will discuss. It's also not an external fight. For those of you who do karate or taekwondo, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, or other forms of martial arts. I did Taekwondo growing up. I thought about doing a demonstration of some karate chops up here uh, this morning, but I'll spare you of that. This passage is not about that kind of fight. It's not a physical fight. It's not a physical fight club, but an internal fight club. A Redeemer Church, there's a fight. There's a battle waging war in our hearts. Paul is going to talk about this fight. If you have a Bible and you haven't already turned there, you can turn to Romans chapter 7. You'll find it in your bulletin as well. You'll want to follow along as we'll be jumping around a bit in this lengthy passage as we finish Romans 7 today. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Dave. I serve as one of the elders here with Redeemer. It's been a joy to walk through Romans uh, together uh, the next three weeks, we'll be beginning our Christmas series, which we're excited about, leading into Christmas Eve. And you should have received last week or this week this beautiful invitation card. You could use this as a reminder for yourself. You can pray for our Christmas Eve services. Maybe keep this in, in your Bible or somewhere on your desk. You can also use it as an invite card. It's a, it's a card that you can pass to your colleagues, co-workers, your neighbors, your friends, someone you want to invite will be in this room Christmas Eve, which is a Sunday this year. So not in the morning, but in the afternoon and evening. So 4 and 6.30 p.m. December 24th, Hope in Christ is the theme. But today we'll finish off Romans 7. In the new year, we'll begin the glorious chapter, chapter 8 of Romans. And I'll take six sermons going through those Verses today. I have one main point, three subpoints, a bunch of other subpoints, several application points. So if you like points this morning, I have a number of them. The text's main point. The text's main point is this: the Christian life is a fight. The Christian life is a fight, and we'll see three things. I'll just take them one at a time. So let's start with the first one. The law shows us it's a fight. Verses 7 through 13. The first six verses, so the context right before our section today in chapter 7, they show us that we have been released from living under the law, but the law is not evil. It's helpful not to save us, but to show us. 
Not to save us, but to show us. The law is like a mirror that shows us our sins. Paul continues that argument and defends the law one more time here in chapter 7. Just because we're not under the law doesn't mean we have a license to sin. It doesn't mean we can just now go and do whatever we'd like. Paul's talked about that. He's saying that again here. And Paul asks a couple questions for the one considering just throwing out the law. So two questions, the first in verse 7, then the second in verse 13. Let's look at the first in verse 7. Look at that verse with me. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Well, the first question Paul asks is, is the law responsible for sin? Paul answers, no. But he tells us he actually learned about his sin from the law. He learned the 10th commandment about covetousness. Now, covetousness is unique because it's almost entirely internal. You might think you're doing an excellent job at the Ten Commandments. You might be going through the Ten Commandments and reading them and thinking, oh, I'm actually doing all right. I haven't killed anybody in my life, and so I'm doing okay. But then you get to this Tenth Commandment, and this Ten Commandments almost entirely internal. You reach Commandment 10, there's no way around covetousness. It's an internal, illicit desire. It's a sinful wanting of something you don't have. When you covet, you're saying at least two things. First is that what God has provided for you is not enough. That what God's given you is not enough. You're saying you know better than God does as to what you should have in this life. And second, you're putting that object in place of God. As one author writes, covetousness lurks hidden in all of our hearts. Remember, it's covetousness here that opened Paul's eyes to depravity. And Paul's not saying in this verse or in the previous verses that the law is responsible for his sin. But we do see our sinfulness clearly when we look at the law. Now most of us are too young to remember when cancer was commonly discovered far too late to treat. The first symptoms almost always led to a death sentence. But then on July the 3rd, 1977, Dr. Raymond Damadian was the first person to perfect the full body scan to diagnose cancer successfully. Now this changed everything, medically speaking. The machine could quickly and accurately give a detailed image of what's happening in a person's body. A doctor could locate cancerous tumors long before the patient even exhibited symptoms. Pastor Chuck Swindoll says if the MRI leads to a diagnosis of cancer, the patient would be foolish to blame the machine for their illness. They should be thankful that this problem was discovered early enough to be treated. Now just as the MRI machine is not responsible for the cancer, neither is the law responsible for sin. Paul is saying, I didn't know I was dying of the disease of sin until the law revealed my condition. The MRI machine shows the cancer the law shows the sin. The MRI revealed a death sentence if not treated. The law revealed a spiritual death sentence if not treated. 
One of, the five, one of the primary functions of the law is to show us our sin. But as we saw last time and now again in verse 8, it also provokes it. Verse 8, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. Paul says, when I saw the law, I saw my covetousness. It wasn't good, but it was clear. I, I could see it. The word opportunity in verse 8 refers to a military base. The starting point or a base of operations for an expedition. You could say for us, knowing the law, our sin was a springboard for the further advancement of sin. Remember, a couple weeks ago, I mentioned that a no trespassing sign makes us want to do what? <laughs> makes us want to trespass. It makes us want to go where we're not allowed to go. And no fishing sign on a hotel balcony makes us want to go fishing. The sin was already in our hearts. The law provoked our action. Now hear this statement. The law doesn't bring sin to life, but it does bring sin to light. It's an important distinction. Paul writes at the end of verse 8, For apart from the law, sin lies dead. The sin was there, but he couldn't see it. The law doesn't bring sin to life, but it does bring sin to light. It does bring sin out into the open. Verse 9, when the commandment came, sin became clear for him. Verse 10, the law wasn't bad, but when it came, it condemned. Verse 11, sin deceived. It lies to us. It promises good things, but ultimately leads to death. After what could be construed as antagonistic banter about the law, Paul wraps up his first question by saying in verse 12, actually the law is holy, righteous, Good. The law is good. It exposes our sin. It provokes our sin. It brings it out into the open. The law is not sinful. The law is not responsible. Sin is to blame, and we are to blame for sin. That's the first question. We see the second question regarding the law in verse 13. Look there with me. Paul asks, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The first question was about sin. The question is, is the law responsible now for death? Is it so horrible we should just reject the law altogether? Paul responds strongly to both of these questions. Verse 7, by no means. Verse 13, by no means. He's saying, may it never be. Heaven forbid. No. No here in the Greek language, interestingly enough, means no. There's no way around it. Paul rejects this teaching about the law. The law is not responsible for sin. The law is not responsible for death. I mean, take the example of a criminal arrested. He or she comes into the courtroom they can't blame the law. Imagine going up to the judge and saying, well, it's the law's fault. The law made me do it. No, the law convicted him or her. But they have no one to blame except themselves. 
The law did not create sin. The law shows us our sin. One of the other things the law shows us is that the Christian life is a fight. And that's the second point. It's an everyday fight. Number two, our life is an everyday fight. This is the bulk of our text this morning and where we'll spend the bulk of our time. Verses 14 through 23, Paul shows us the law is not responsible for our sin, but also can't make us holy or save ourselves. Now, I think these verses here are Paul's spiritual autobiography. But it's also the experience of every Christian. There's a war raging in each of our hearts. Now some scholars argue that Paul is speaking here of an unbeliever. Or when he was an unbeliever. Whereas others think he's a believer here. Now those who think Paul is speaking of an unbeliever, they ask these questions of the text. Where's the mention of the Holy Spirit? How could a Christian not do what they want to do? Why would Christians cry out for deliverance? And maybe the the biggest one, how can a Christian be a slave to sin? Krizel read all those those verses. They're kind of a little bit confusing. It it, it sounds like the, the, the person's unsure. Now, those are valid points, valid questions. But I think Paul is speaking here of a believer. I think he's speaking autobiographically. I also think he's speaking as a mature believer in this text. And I think that for several reasons. Let me just run through. I guess this is one of my list of subpoints of subpoints, but here's a few reasons. Number one, the change in verb tense from the past in our earlier verses to the present. I think that's important. The most natural reading would tell us Paul is speaking about himself as a believer in the present. Two, there's also a situational change. The previous verses are about sin killing him. In verse 14 and following, Paul discusses this ongoing fight with sin. Indeed, he's struggling, but he's battling. He's fighting. Earlier verses about his pre-conversion life, about a life before Christ. These verses about his life post-conversion, his life with Christ. Three, I think this is important, Paul delights in God's law in verse 22. Unbelievers don't delight in God's law. Their hearts are hostile towards God. Paul says he delights in God's law, and not just that, but in my inner being. This means in your heart of hearts, your true self. This is not true of an unbeliever. Four, in verse 14, Paul sees God's law as spiritual. Verses 15 and 18, he desires to keep the law. That's a believer's heart posture. Five, the fact that Paul admits in verse 18 that he knows nothing good dwells in him. Unbelievers don't talk like that. They're not aware of being lost and unable to save themselves. And number six, just the context of Romans as it is. We're we're in this section of sanctification. So we looked in the beginning of Romans at condemnation, that we are lost without God. And then we saw the good news starting in in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, where we saw justification, that we are declared righteous through the death of Jesus Christ. And then we moved into this section now of sanctification, about our growth and holiness, about becoming more and more like Jesus in our Christian life. We're in this section of sanctification. I think chapter 7 happens right here in the middle where Paul speaks of the typical Christian life and he describes sanctification or he describes the Christian life as a 
fight. Now here's one of the main points, regardless of one's view. No one can keep the law. Paul's even saying, I can't keep the law perfectly. A Christian is, is still incapable of keeping the law of God. <clears throat> the Christian life is a fight, and it's an everyday fight. We should expect the type of experience Paul talks about here. If it was a fight, think about this, if it was a fight for the Apostle Paul, if it was a fight for the greatest church planter of all time, if it was a fight for the Apostle Paul, it's going to be a fight for us. Even as Christians, I guarantee it'll be a fight for you and me. It's an everyday fight, but it's also a lifelong fight. No one of us will achieve perfection in this life until we enter glory. But until then, we fight. Now look down towards the end of our passage, verses 21 through 23. They show this battle. Paul writes, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right... Evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Delighting in the law, at the same time captivity to sin. Both of these realities running parallel in the believer's heart. It is a fight. How often have we tried with all of our might to follow Christ, but then have been pulled down by our flesh and failed? Paul in verse 15, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Oh, fellow Christian, do you ever feel this way? Oh, you really want to please God. You really, really don't want to sin. You really don't want to sin, but sometimes you give in. Now, as a Christian, you're not free from sin. But what happens after you do sin? Maybe soon in the moment... Or maybe sometime after you hate it, you feel sick about it. You feel guilt or shame. You sin occasionally, but you no longer sin with the freedom you once were used to. Now, now there's a battle. Now, now there's a fight. The flesh against the spirit, a, a, a tension, a war. And it's a fight that doesn't stop. It's a fight each of us are engaged in. You know, we're no strangers to wars happening in the regions around us. We're thankful to the Lord for a pocket of peace here in the UAE. But we know in several areas, regions around us, there are wars. The two sides might at points make a ceasefire agreement. Maybe some trade of a hostage release in exchange for a few days of peace. You can't make that type of agreement with your flesh. You can't ask for a period of peace. There's no ceasefire. There's no peace. Your flesh is constantly at war with 
the Spirit. It's an ongoing conflict, a fight that never stops until glory. Now, there might not be a mention of the Holy Spirit in Romans 7, but we'll read a lot about the Spirit in Romans chapter 8. And we know that as a believer, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And so there's hope in the fight because there's the Holy Spirit in the fight. And the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin and helps you fight sin and walks alongside you while you fight. So you can't gamble your money away without feeling sick about it. Lusting after a man or a woman doesn't fill your heart. It left you empty before you became a believer, but you feel empty and horrible doing it as a believer. You're chasing a relationship or a feeling that you weren't meant to experience or have. Pride. You start boasting about your accomplishments. You may feel great for the moment, but when you lay in bed at night, you realize how foolish you sounded and how foolish you were to say those things to try to make yourself look good in another's eyes. It's because others' approval doesn't ultimately fulfill you. The Holy Spirit convicts you. So Redeemer Church, looking at this fight, where do we go from here? Well, let me suggest three applications for this everyday, lifelong fight. Three things. Number one, cut sin off. Cut sin off. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if your eye sins, tear it out. If your hand sins, cut it off. Obviously, Jesus didn't mean to literally rip off your eye. We don't have any evidence that the disciples were blind or missing hands. Our membership is not filled with people with pirate patches over one eye. That's not the point that Jesus makes. That's not the point that Paul is talking about here. The point is to do whatever it takes to cut out that sin from your life. I remember I had a friend in university. I was working in a residence hall in a dormitory and I was, had already graduated and this student was working for me. One day, uh, the student, he he was coming down the stairs from his dormitory room and he was, he was holding a big 40-inch TV. Now, I know many of you are really young and so all you know is of those shiny flat screen TVs. But this is, this is back in the day. It's a few decades ago and TVs were huge. They were huge boxes. And so this, this friend of mine was walking down the stairs with this huge box in his arms. We see him come down the stairs. I'm at the front desk of the dormitory. We have no idea what he's doing with this big TV, but he pushes through the door to go outside and some of us follow him and he goes to the dumpster. He goes to this enormous rubbish bin and he threw his TV down into the bin. And we were all shocked, but he looked at us and he said he was done with his sin. He threw out his TV right then and there. If the most precious thing, friend, if the most precious thing in your life causes you to sin, get rid of it. Whatever it is, get rid of it. Cut it off. Cut it off. Tear out your eye. Cut off your hand. Cut off your sin. Don't let it linger. Now, suppose you have a snake. Cobra, a viper. I don't know what kinds of snakes you can have as a pet. But if you have a snake as a pet, bless you. I never will, but bless you. I'm not even sure. Are you allowed to have a snake as a pet in the UAE? I'm not even sure you're allowed to. I do know there are exotic pets here. Do you remember those pictures from years ago uh, of, of a car driving on Shakeside Road with a tiger in the passenger seat? 
You'd have all those crazy pictures. You, you could Google that. that. That might be worth five seconds of your, your time. But I don't know. Are snakes even allowed here? I don't know. But I'll never have a snake as a pet. Period. If you have one, if you have a snake as a pet, how do you sleep at night? Like, how do you actually go to sleep at night knowing there's a snake in your house? We stayed at a house for a few days a couple summers ago that had a snake. And I'm thinking, what's going to happen if that snake gets out of the cage? You remember the character Woody uh, and his words in the classic Toy Story, there's a snake in my boot. Now, I don't own boots, but I don't want snakes anywhere near my footwear. That's for sure. I don't want a snake in my house because we've all heard those stories or we've read those stories online, right? About the snake that escapes during the night only to bite its owner. Now, that story I know you can find on the internet because there's lots of them. If you let the snake linger and you aren't careful, He'll bite you. Now, same with sin. We don't let it linger. Cut it off. Now, no offense to anyone who owns a snake. This is just an illustration. But in this case, you get that snake as far away from your house as possible. Don't let it near. It might not bite you today, but it will bite you one day. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, No sacrifice is too great if it enables us to conquer a lust which cuts us off from Jesus. Friends, no sacrifice is too great. Whatever that thing you love more than Jesus, whatever that thing you love that cuts you off from fellowship with Jesus, cut it out. Cut off the sin so it doesn't cut off your fellowship with Jesus. That's number one, first point of application. Number two, confess to God and others. So cut off sin. Number two, confess to God and others. Conviction of sin leads to cutting off of sin, which leads to confession of sin. We fight sin with confession. This is the opposite of the fight club I mentioned earlier. The first rule of the Christian fight club is to talk about fight club. Christians are to be open about the fight and to help each other in the fight. And the first step is being honest about our sin. Now, one of my favorite stories, I've shared it before. There was a great story during the Great Awakening in North America uh, when many uh, were coming to faith in the 18th century and the foremost theologian and a prominent pastor, Jonathan Edwards, was preaching at a prayer meeting, leading a prayer meeting of 800 men on one particular night there in the northeastern part of the United States. During the meeting... A woman sent a message to the leaders of the gathering in private asking uh, the men to pray for her husband who was unloving and prideful. Hearing that the man was present, Jonathan Edwards gets a hold of this message and he got up and he read the whole letter to the assembly of the 800 men. And he then asked the man whose wife had written the letter to raise his hand so they could pray for him. And do you know what happened? 300 men raised their hands. 300 men convicted of their pride. 300 men convicted of harsh treatment of their wife. Each man convicted of his sin and confessed it. Oh, friend, if you have confessed, if you have unconfessed sin in your life, confess to God. Confess to Him. 1 John 
1.9, this verse that we often read in, in an assurance of pardon after we confess our sins corporately, reads, if you, we confess our sins, listen to this, if we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh friend, that is a great promise. If we confess our sins to God, He forgives us. I mean, this is glorious. Go to God no matter what you did last year or last night. No matter whether you've been in this sin for three days or 33 years. No matter if you're a new believer or if you're an older believer. No matter if you're six years old or 86 years old. You can go to God, confess your sin, and receive forgiveness because Christ died on the cross to forgive us of our sins. Go to God. Our, your sin... Oh, friend, no matter what it is, and you can tell me the worst of worst things, your sin will never outweigh God's grace. God's grace is greater than your sin. None of us is beyond saving. None of us. Friend, if you find yourself in a mess, go to Jesus. Go to Jesus and then go to someone else. Confess to God and confess to others. The book of James also tells us to share with others. Not to everyone necessarily, but maybe to a couple people who know you and could walk alongside you. If we try and fight alone, we will fail. That's why I titled this sermon, Fight Club. That's what a church should be. A church should be a sin-fighting club that locks arms together to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. That we fight together for holiness because it's a fight. And we need each other. We need to encourage each other. And we need to keep each other accountable. Make sure that there are people in your life who know about your life. And here's what I don't mean. What I don't mean is you tell these people a little bit about this part of your life. And then you tell, the, tell this other person something else about your life. And then you tell these other people something else about your life. So nobody really knows the whole story. And everyone has just this one-sided picture of who you are or what you're struggling with. No, this means sharing it all, bearing it all. Again, not to everyone, but perhaps to one, two, maybe three people who can help you fight. Make sure that there are people in your life who know about your life. Because sin thrives in the darkness. Did you, know, did you know that? The Bible is clear. Sin thrives. It grows. It stays. Lives in the darkness. And the way to kill sin is to bring it into the light. It can't take the light. The light devours sin. So church, we're a different kind of fight club. We know sin is crouching at the door. And so we talk about the fight because each of us needs help in the fight. Pastors, elders, we need help in the fight. There's no such thing as a super Christian. There's no such thing as perfection. All of us sin. All of us are in the same boat, the same ship. We need help. We help each other with phone calls, messages. We help by asking each other intentionally intrusive questions. Those awkward heart level questions that a true friend asks, even if it's a little tough or a little awkward to ask. Now, how are you doing spiritually? How are you doing with this particular sin? Are you giving faithfully to the church? Are you looking at pornography? Are you cheating at school? Are you ethical at work? Do you ever share the gospel 
with someone? Are you being nice to your spouse? How's your language? How is your thought life? I could go on and on. We ask intentionally intrusive questions because we care about each other. Because we love each other. We also help each other by reading the Bible together. Just by getting together, maybe every week or every other week, you get together with maybe another Christian, maybe a couple of others, and you just read the Bible together. You look, make observations, you, you look f- for what is the Bible saying, what is the Bible saying to you, you live it out, you ask each other accountability questions, you pray for one another. Are you praying with others about the fight? Are you praying with others? Are you praying for others? What do your devotional times look like? They consumed with you fighting, asking God to help you, asking God to help others? First application, cut off sin. Second application, confess to God and others. And a third application, another C, cover yourself with the armor of God. <clears throat> cover yourself with God's armor. Now, there's a funny story from the 1980s. When a middle-aged Canadian man, now listen to this, this man spent his entire life savings building an indestructible suit that he could wear in battle against a wild grizzly bear. Now that's pretty crazy. His entire life savings, because a grizzly bear had attacked him in the past, and while he came out alive, he was injured, he was determined to somehow go out in nature and find that same exact bear again and beat that bear up. His name was Troy. Troy Herchubis designed various prototypes for bear-proof armor for seven years. He used and constructed from, uh, constructed it from metals and appliances found in his scrapyard that he owned in, in Ontario, Canada. Now, early versions of the suit, it looked like some kind of street or ice hockey goalie and a baseball catcher, but the prototypes became increasingly sophisticated and eventually resembled his lifelong hero, RoboCop. I hope your lifelong hero is not RoboCop. Maybe you don't know who RoboCop is, but this man loved RoboCop. And he went through a series of dangerous trials of his suit. And I actually watched these online. And uh, it was definitely worth my two minutes. I don't think it was wasted. He was thrown down a cliff in his bear suit. Uh, He was beaten over and over again by these two-by-fours of wood. He was struck by a truck traveling 50 kilometers per hour. This was especially fun because he went flying out in the distance. He was struck by the truck going 50 miles, 50 kilometers per hour, 18 times in his trial. He stood in a pit of of fire. Now his antics sparked a lot of interest in Canada. He became a local celebrity appearing on Canadian radio. One television show later on did a parody in which the laughing stock of the show built a bear-proof suit out of scrap metal just like Troy's and called it Bear Buster 5000. Now Troy was determined to fight that bear with proper protection and proper weapons. Now friends, as Christians, our enemy is the world, the flesh, and the devil. Like Troy, we have to fight fire with fire. Unlike Troy, we don't make a bear suit. The Bible tells us that we're to put on the whole armor 
of God for our fight. And this is explained in Ephesians chapter 6. If you have a Bible, you can turn there or maybe later on this afternoon, you could read Ephesians chapter 6. How do we fight Romans 7 style? Well, with Ephesians 6 armor. This is Paul, the author of Romans. Paul, the author of Ephesians. In fact, in the very first song that we sung this morning, Christ is mine forevermore. In the third verse, these are the words that we sung. Mine are tears, or mine are days, here as a stranger, pilgrim on a narrow way, one with Christ I will encounter, harm and hatred for his name. But mine is armor for this battle, strong enough to last the war. Well, how do we fight Romans 7 style? We fight with the full armor of God. Listen to these verses. Ephesians 6 verses 11 through 13 say, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Now friends, we can only fight if we put on this armor. In the following verses of Ephesians 6, Paul lists six types of armor. Six pieces of the soldier's equipment or uniform. <clears throat> Let me run through those quickly. Number one, we fasten the belt of truth. Now this belt kept one's tunic together. It also held one's sword. It was foundational to the armor. The truth about God is foundational to our battle. We must know the truth. Two, we put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now this was a huge piece of armor. It was a major piece of the armor and it covered up one's vital organs. This refers to the imputed righteousness given to us at salvation, but it's also a regular putting on or living a righteous life. Three, the gospel comes next as shoes for the feet. We put on the gospel of grace. The gospel is what gives us firm footing. This is why we never move beyond the gospel. The gospel is not just what saves us. The gospel is not just what unbelievers need. We need it as believers to live within the truths of the gospel. Now we remember the good news of Jesus Christ. It's foundational for our fight. You've got to have good shoes. Four, in all circumstances we take up the shield of faith. Well that way you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Only faith can fight Satan's schemes. Now, God is our shield. He's our refuge. And it is by faith that we go to him as our refuge. Well, five, we take the helmet of salvation. Now, this is the hope of salvation. This is knowing that salvation is secure. We can't lose it. And so we put on that helmet and we hold our heads up high, knowing that we can never lose it, that God will keep us until the end. And six, we take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now here's the only weapon that not only defends but attacks. This is God's Word. This is why we read it as Christians. This is why we devour it, why we meditate on it, why we memorize it, study it, talk about it, listen to the preaching of it. This is why we teach others about it. 
The word of God is our weapon. It is our sword. Redeemer Church, the Christian life is a fight. We don't put on a bear suit, but Paul tells us that we're to put on the whole armor of God. Wear this belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel shoes, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. We cut, confess, and cover. Three C's. And then if you want to add a fourth C, that's our third point today. And we'll close with this just for a moment. Number three, Christ is our only hope in the fight. Verses 24 and 25. Look at those verses. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Well, Paul realizes he's wretched. Now, wretched's not a nice word to describe ourselves. I wonder if you've ever called yourself wretched. I wonder if you've ever written that word in your bio or on, on a tagline on social media. It's about as bad as it gets. Again, I don't think it's an immature Christian who realizes this. It's not an unbeliever who understands this. These are the words of the mature believer who understands that apart from God, they are nothing. Now that Paul realizes his helplessness, he'll get help. We're in trouble as long as we think we can save, sanctify, and fight sin alone. Now, Paul is the model of a mature Christian, the one who knows he needs a rescuer, the one who knows that Christ alone can rescue. And that's what we see in the final verse of our passage, this doxology of sorts where Paul just calls out, cries out, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul doesn't ask what he must do. He asks who will rescue him and then he answers it with that doxology. It's Jesus. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who rescues us. Oh friends, apart from Christ, we're all wretched. We're all wretched sinners. Every one of us, we were born wretched and, and we continue on in life wretched. From the first two humans in the garden until today, none of us can please God. We can only identify with Paul's words and say wretched man or wretched woman or wretched child that I am. We all deserve death and judgment. Because of our wretchedness and sin, we deserve death and judgment because a holy God can't have wretched people in his presence or he'll cease to be holy. But verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, verse 25 is our answer to verse 24. And friends, we need verse 25. We needed someone to save us and give us their righteousness. Now, Jesus is fully God and fully man, came from heaven to earth, and he lived not a life of wretchedness, not a life of sin, but he lived the perfect life. He faced temptation, yes, but he never sinned. But he lived a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He lived a life of love. After a life of perfection, the envy, jealousy, anger, and sin of others, and each of us nailed him to the cross. And on that cross, Jesus took upon himself the sins of his people, the sins that we had committed, and he took upon himself the death that we deserved. 
On the third day after death, he rose from the dead, proving that what he had said, what he had taught, what he had done was all true. That he had conquered sin and death. He was the long-expected Savior. And we're about to sing, even starting next week, Christmas songs. And we're going to sing, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus. This was the long-expected Savior who had come to die for his people's sins. And it was Jesus. If you're here, friend, and you don't yet follow Jesus, may today be the day that you follow him. You repent of your sin. You believe in him to be saved. You need Jesus to take your wretchedness, to take your sin. We've all needed this. Don't wait another day. Join the fight. When you repent of your sin and you believe in Jesus, God brings you from spiritual death to spiritual life. And then the fight begins. Then we fight together. So come join us. The fight continues, though, Look at how Paul ends the chapter. We have victory in Christ, but there's still a fight. The fight is a reality. The flesh is not overcome and left behind in this life. As one scholar writes about verse 25, the fight continues through and beyond the shout of thanksgiving, that doxology of Paul. There's a continual battle for supremacy in our hearts. We're still divided. Simultaneously, we cry out, how wretched am I? And at the same time, we cry out, oh, but thanks be to God Through Jesus Christ. Paul says the fight vividly portrayed in this passage doesn't end when we become a Christian, but the Spirit indwells us. Instead, the real fight begins when we're saved and the Spirit lives in us. The Christian life isn't easy. Oh, friends, don't believe that lie. The pastors around the world are lying to you when they say that the Christian life is easy. Or maybe you watch on TV or you hear some message on the radio that says the Christian life is easy. Come to Christ. And, and you'll get health, wealth, prosperity. You'll get the car you want. You'll get the life you want. Why do pastors preach this false message? These are false teachers, false preachers. I think they do it. Bring more people in the seats. That sounds like a nice message. Get more money in the offering bags, perhaps. But friends, the Christian life is not an easy life. The Bible says something completely different than that false gospel. The Christian life is a fight. Your problems won't all go away. You will struggle with sin. That won't vanish. The battle continues. But Romans 7 gives us hope. Gives us hope. Because one way we fight is we confess to God. We have fellowship with God. We confess with one another. We walk with each other in accountability. This is the everyday Christian life. Gives us hope that we can fight. Romans 8 is coming. Romans 7 gives us hope because Romans 8 is coming. Read Romans 8 later on this afternoon. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have hope in Romans 7. Romans 8 is coming. The Holy Spirit is with you and the Holy Spirit will help you fight sin. The Christian life is a fight, Redeemer Church. Keep fighting. Keep fighting. Keep fighting. Keep fighting. God is with you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you alone can rescue us from this body of sin and death. We praise you for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, through whom rescue comes. We thank you for your saving grace. Would we fight faithfully against the world, the flesh, and the devil? Would we fight for holiness at Redeemer Church? 
Would our lives be pleasing to you? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.